Have you ever been old before? Has anyone you know? It's part of the cycle of life, and it happens to most of us. If you're over 65, getting there, or concerned about someone who is, this podcast is for you. Hosts Dr. Marilyn Lakin, Marie Sola, and Sarah Stacy, a multi-generational team of women, will help you redefine what it means to get older. We'll be bringing you the latest information and speaking with today's experts and pioneers. Best of all, we bring it to you from a place of understanding. Our goal is to create a library of knowledge and experience to help you or your loved ones navigate this phase of life to the fullest. We can't turn back the clock, but we can make sure we live our lives informed and on our own terms. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Never Been Old Before podcast series. Today, we have a really fun and I want to say almost contemplative uh, subject matter. It's all about story writing and story writing classes and the importance of telling your story. So Jim Chatham is a retired Presbyterian pastor living with his wife, Nancy, in Asheville, North Carolina. During his career, he was a pastor of churches in Mississippi, North Carolina, Ohio, and Kentucky, with special devotion in race relations and refugee resettlement. Personal story writing was all the while a major pursuit, and in retirement, he established a six-week story writing workshop, Turning Your Life into Literature, to motivate others to write stories from their lives. He has led more than 40 such workshops with over 200 participants. In addition to the writing, he cherishes the camaraderie, the mutual appreciation and respect created by the workshop experience. Now, I think it's time to hear from Jim. Jim Chatham, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast about the stories of your life and and your story writing workshop and all of the wonderful things you're doing. Um, And I'm excited for people to learn more about you, why you started these workshops, and dig in a little bit as to what you actually do and why they're so important for the people that actually come to your classes, to your students. So thank you, Jim, for agreeing to hang out with us. It is a pleasure to be here, Marie. I want to get started with the question I think that came to my mind the first time we spoke. And how did you get into your story writing? How did that all come about? Well, when I became a preacher in 1964, one of the first things I learned, Marie, was that people don't remember nearly as much the points that you make in your preaching as they remember the stories that you tell. I remember one man had moved to our community, a man named Wiley Egan. He had retired. He had made plenty of money in his life. And he uh, showed up in my office one day and said, I'm getting all this Social Security money every month that I don't need. I want you to tell me something we could do through this church that uh, with my money. 
And uh, it was a church in a neighborhood with a lot of uh, single household families. And we had kids coming home at 3 o'clock and parents not getting home till 5.30. And he set up a whole latchkey program for the children of that whole neighborhood. And he used to come down there at uh, his 80-something birthday and, and play with the kids. And I had uh, people in the congregation two and three and four years later telling me they still remembered that story and that they someday wanted to be like Wiley Egan. And that was sort of a symbol to me of what story can do. Yeah, that's that's really, if you think about it, it personalizes things uh, and points, as you said, and makes them more human so that we can relate to them, right? And you got it. what is it, do you think, that made the stories especially useful in the sermons? Because they were stories from my own life. Uh, I found that the best place for me to find stories was looking in my memory. Uh, I could use an occasional one here or there out of a book or out of an article, but much better if they came from my life because they represented me and not someone else. And the best, strongest preaching I did was to preach the things I believed. And that's what my stories did. And I have to ask you, why do a number of older adults find story writing especially good for them? Another thing I discovered early in my pastor life, Marie, was that articulation is therapy. Saying it in words heals us. Putting my story into words is a huge part of my being whole. And I think that a lot of older people uh, writing their tales begin to figure that out. They come to know themselves in ways that they would never have done so otherwise. Stories are healing for the people that tell them, and I think also for the people that are listening that can relate to them. You bet. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So what led to you leading these story workshops, and when did you start doing them? Well, after retirement, I cast around for what I wanted to do. What was I, did I have something to offer? And I tried two or three different things and finally decided that uh, what I wanted to do was continue the story part of my life. Uh, that's the best, best I had to offer. And I also was aware that lots of people around me, I had heard them say at one time or another, you know, I've got some really good stories in my life that I ought to write down sometime. And I would just look at them and say, have you started yet? And so it occurred to me, why not figure out a way to get them started? Because lots of people walk around with that sort of library in their head, and very few people ever get there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as you get older, it's it's about giving the legacy back to, to the people that you came before. So who are your students' stories for? Like, who are they usually writing them for? And why is it so important for them to write them? Well, people come with a variety of answers to that question. Uh, one of them is, I want to get published. We Uh, have the notion that if we get ourselves published, we've gained a status we haven't had before. 
and anybody who's been published before knows that that's not true. But uh, still, uh, some number of people show up believing that. Uh, and I say to them strongly, strongly, you are not here to write to get published. Uh, what you will write for an editor is different from what you will write for your grandchildren or for your friends or for your family. You are writing for the people to whom your life will make a difference at some time in the future. And I want you to keep it that way. And why do you feel, but also what have you seen in your time doing this that makes it so important for people to actually do this, to write these stories down? Because there's a whole, there are two generations of people, three generations of people alive today that do not know the world I grew up in. And uh, therefore, they really don't know themselves that fully. They don't know what blood flows in their veins, what ideas have been set into their minds. And they will know only if I tell them, only if you tell them. And how many times have I said to myself over the years, why didn't I ask more? And you're responding to that question before it gets asked. Oh, so true. I, it's beautiful because I lost my mom a couple of years ago, you know, and I talked to her about a lot of things. And I still say that, why didn't I ask more? And with my dad, too, you know, and and my mom did write some stories down. And we have a couple of uh, books that we've put together on her reflections. And they're very comforting to go to, to learn things that I never would have known otherwise, because I didn't ask. You know, think about it. You don't ask. What was your very first workshop like? And and then tell me what you learned from it that you utilize now today in your workshops. My first workshop was a Friday night and a Saturday running through the afternoon. Time stacked upon time, all crammed together into one small unit. And my great uh, fallacy was that I thought I had something to teach. I was there to convey to people something they needed to hear and learn about story writing. And I quickly, quickly learned that they learn much better from one another than from me. People feed one another in these workshops. And the sooner I withdraw myself from the middle, my stories don't matter that much. Their stories are what matter. And that's the main thing I picked up early. So you became a facilitator, perhaps, as opposed yeah. to an instructor, but still teaching yet in your own way. In my own way. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the fundamental goals of your writing workshops? The first goal is to motivate people to write. I will gather eight people around a table and have them read to one another. And what I want more than anything else is that when their two hours together are finished, they will all go out of there wanting to go home and write their next story. They will have gotten ideas to write about. They will have gotten cues on how to write it. And they will have gotten them from one another. And that's my first goal. Uh, there are some other things in addition. When they, when they leave, I want them to say to themselves, hey, I can do this. Uh, many people come in doubtful that they have, that they can find the stories for one thing, or uh, that they can write them in a way they're happy with as another thing. And I want them to walk out of there saying, yes, this is something I can do. 
And second thing is, I want them to begin to accumulate a collection of the stories they've written. Uh, the holiday season will come up in the next few weeks or the next few months or sometime. And one of the best gifts you can give is a gift of uh, 6, 8, 10, 12, 15 stories from earlier in your life uh, to those who love you. Uh, it is a wonderful uh, outcome. And then the third thing I want them to discover is the camaraderie of doing it together. We get together and write together, we read together, we talk together, and all of a sudden there emerges a camaraderie that we did not anticipate. We didn't know any of these people before we walked in this room. They were strangers, and all of a sudden they have become our best friends in just a few short hours together. And just remind me again, when was that first workshop that you did? The very first one was... 17 years ago. Okay. So you've come a long way since then. And, you know, as you you talked about, you know, you you did it, you crammed it into like a weekend or a day and a half. What is the structure of your workshop and your classes today? How how does that differ? What's that look like today? Okay. I uh, asked people to reserve six weeks, uh, two hours per week, once a week. Uh, I limit the number of people uh, to eight at the very most. Seven is good. Six is good. Uh, More than uh, eight is uh, you're losing too much dynamic within the uh, experience. They write their stories at home. They read when they get to class. Also included in these workshops are short little teaching bits from me. Uh, I've got a few things I want to convey to them that I have learned about effective story writing, and I will have a little 10 or 12 or 15-minute insert into their readings sometimes uh, presenting one of these things. But for the most part, they are reading to one another, and uh, that is the way we spend our six two-hour sessions together uh, in uh, two-hour time, you can have at least six and usually seven people read a story and have it responded to uh, very, very well uh, and sufficiently. And I want to get most of them having the opportunity to read each time they gather. And do you have any pre-assignments that you ask people to do before they come to one of your workshops or classes? Um And if so, what are they and how do they help? I've got two pre-assignments, Marie. Uh, uh, Most people, not everybody, but most people who walk in that door uh, to the workshop have anxiety. They've never done this before. They've never written a story to read to other people and then have other people talk about it. That's just off their uh, field. So what I do is ask them to sit down and put on paper Uh, every reason their mind will say to them quietly and privately as they get ready to read, your reading isn't really going to be good enough for this group. Uh, And uh, they will come up with everything under the sun. Uh, I get writer's cramp. Uh, I can't remember good stories. My memory isn't that good. I'm not as good a writer as some people in this group. Uh, and, And so on and so on. And I want us to list out all of those things, articulate them from the very beginning, 
and then get them on the board so we can sit there and look at them. And then I say, okay, now, when you get ready to read, uh, you are allowed to say one thing. Uh, and I draw a, a line across the board uh, labeled one, two, three, four, five, up to ten. Uh, ten means I am very anxious. Uh, one means I am not anxious at all. You are allowed to say, I am a three or I am a six. And that's all you can say, the only disclaimer you can list. Uh, otherwise, you're just wasting our time and yours uh, if you go into an explanation of why your writing isn't good enough. So I have them play that little game first. <laughs> and uh, But even more than that is the map. The map is one of the most productive things in the whole workshop. I tell them in advance to take a sheet of paper, which is big enough, whatever that means, and draw a map of the first neighborhood they remember living in as a small child. And you are not writing history. History doesn't matter. Memory is what you're writing. Draw streets, draw houses, draw buildings, draw schools, draw stores, draw parks, draw uh, favorite places, draw ominous places, uh, draw uh, rivers, draw creeks, uh, draw where things memorable happen to you, uh, draw whatever is in your mind from the earliest neighborhood that you remember living in. Now, uh, my 93-year-old mother-in-law did this one night. She was signed up for the workshop the next day. And she did this, and I watched her at our dining room table sit there and absolutely come to life uh, drawing her map and remembering things she hadn't thought about in years. And that is what typically happens when people draw the map. That's fantastic. And what a great idea. Like, what? How did you come up with that, if you don't mind me asking as an aside? Because Some book back there uh, suggested it, and I thought that's a wonderful idea. And whatever the book was, he said, that's not, my, not new with me. That's been around a long time. So we don't know who started it. But it's great. You didn't have to reinvent the wheel on that one, but it certainly sounds effective. And right. what is the most essential thing you tell your students when they first gather for the workshop? Okay, three things. Number one, you are here for to create good writing as much as you are able to do so. Uh, you write the way you write, and I want you to be confident and happy with whatever way that is, but you are here to write as well as you can. The second thing you are here to do is to learn as best you can to listen when other people are reading. Uh, that other person who is reading his or her story is a very important person in life and has an important story to tell. And I want you to take that story as seriously as your mind will let you do it. Forget about the grocery shopping list you've got to attend to when you leave here. Forget about the phone call you've got to make. Clear it all out, every bit of it, and listen very, very intently to the person who is reading a story. And then when the story is finished, you have an even harder task before you, and that is to figure out the best thing you can say in response, the most motivating remark you can reply uh, in response to the story you just heard. Our society is awful at both of these things, listening 
and responding. We've never had a course in either one of them. Uh, it's not taught in schools. Uh, we do not practice it well, but they are both things that you and I can get better at if we bring them to mind, make them conscious, and sit there concentrating effort to make them happen. We can get better. And uh, our motto at the end of this little sermon is no parallel stories in this workshop. When someone tells a story to you out on the street or in the park bench, uh, how is it that you are most prone to respond immediately? By responding with your story, which parallels their story. But you have just taken the emphasis off what they have said and placed it on what you have said. You are not to do that in here. It, you will have to fight against the urge. It will come back to you over and over. But you must say to yourself, no parallel stories. Because if you don't say it to yourself, we will say it to you. That's part of the dynamic of the workshop. Oh, I I love how you set the stage from the beginning because it really does promote um, a sense of of sharing and community from the beginning. And we sort of ascertained earlier that you know you said when you first started your workshops you decided that you you weren't going to teach as much as you know, sharing tips and facilitating, for lack of a better word. But I know that you have some wonderful tips that you do share with your group about writing. So will you tell us what some of your favorite writing tips are that you do share in class? Yeah, you know, one of my absolute favorites is what I call participle power. Participle is a word which is both a verb and a an adjective, an adjective, of course, describes something. A verb speaks of action. And there are certain words in our community, that, in our language, that combine those two, and we call them participles. And uh, think for just a moment about a tree. Uh, how might you describe a tree? You might use adjectives such as large, small, lovely, scrawny, full, sparse, green, red, or strong. Those are good adjectives, and they describe a tree. But the tree remains rather flat. It's not alive. It has nothing going on with it. Think about participles you might use to describe the same tree. Commanding, dominating, dancing, singing, whispering, welcoming, inviting, imposing, threatening calming, giving, all participles, and all of them bringing that tree to life. So if you're trying to write a story that seems dead, think about participles and figure out what they can do for you. That's the kind of little thing I uh, put in there. You want another one? I've got several, but that's probably enough. I would love another. Please, share if you could share a couple more with us. I think that uh, people listening who are considering writing, would love to hear it. One of the most difficult ones, uh, because you can be offensive with this, is what I call voice. Uh, we all speak with some sort of voice. 
And uh, sometimes that is a voice that nobody wants to hear. And uh, when uh, my voice is one that nobody's going to want to hear, uh, only my, my best friends will tell me about it. But uh, somebody needs to tell me about it, such as the poor me voice. Uh, I'm always a victim. Uh, I'm always the third one out. I'm always uh, put down, uh, you, you know, martyr this, martyr that. we got a whole society of that going on around us at the present time. Uh, another is the voice of, I've been through some awful battles in my life, battles with this, battles with that, battles with, but, but the one thing you can count on is that I've always turned out to be right. Now, there are books written around this theme. I have always been the one who turned out to be right. Uh, and uh, uh, After you've read a couple of those books, you don't want to read anymore. That's enough. Another is the, the Banny Rooster voice. Well, I am here because I am the most important thing in the world, and uh, you need to hear what I've got to say. Uh, if you've got that voice in your stories, some good friend needs to tell you, and you need to figure out how to strain it out because that's not taking you anywhere. You get my point? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Amen. Then uh, another one is uh, abstract nouns. There are two kinds of nouns in our language. One is the concrete noun, a, a table, a chair, a hand. The other is the abstract noun, such as joy, anger, regret, self-giving, resilience, snobbish, guilt, vengeance, determination, forgiveness, love, pretense, anxiety, these are abstract nouns, and what we do is get the group to list on a board abstract nouns that speak things they are very familiar with. I know about guilt. I know about regret. I know about determination or conviction. I know about these things because I have experienced them. And what I want you to do as a group, I split them into pairs and have two people look each other straight in the face, and each one has about two or three or four minutes to tell the story of why they know about that abstract noun, why they know about regret, why they know about courage. Uh, tell the story to your friend and then go home and write it down for the whole group. That's a very productive thing. Yeah, and it, it leads me to ask you, how important are your students' interactions and connections with one another? I think this kind of leads into that. And how does that help them in their writing process? Yeah, well, they quickly learn that their interactions are everything. Uh, our interactions are everything, because I'm in that too. And uh, their motivation comes from realizing they have touched another human being with what they've read or what they've said. Uh, and they have not only touched another, but they have made contact with another. Uh, we are all in it together. What, what, what we're discovering here is we are not alone. Uh, these things are common challenges in every life, yours and mine. It means everything in this workshop. Nice. 
Nice. I, I really, I love that piece of it. And what are the top three things that you feel people take away from your classes? Well, I'll, let me list the top two. Number one is the motivation to go home and write more. Golly, I can't wait to get home. I, I had one lady who came in one day said, uh, you know, it's like being back in the fifth grade. Uh, I, I can't wait to get to class the next week. And uh, it was all because she had become so addicted to her writing, and she loved it. And uh, I can't wait to write more. And, of course, the other is, uh, hey, I'm building a pretty good gift for my family for uh, next Hanukkah or next Christmas or next whatever. Uh, I like the like what's going on here. Uh, it, it'll be a gift that's different from any they've ever had before and certainly different from any I've ever given before. And it's a gift I'm going to be proud of. And it doesn't cost a dime. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes those, actually, most of the time, those gifts are the most meaningful, aren't they? What are the unintended and unexpected benefits of your classes? There is one main unexpected benefit, and that is at the end of a six-week workshop, almost all of the time, I have no idea whether the people in there are Republicans or Democrats. Nice. The things they've been writing about are things that are so common to our shared humanity that it transcends politics completely, and you have learned about some of the fundamentals of the lives of, of some other human beings, and politics don't matter. Boy, what a relief it is to gain that ground. Yeah, no kidding, especially <laughs> nowadays. Amazing what happens when you humanize one another as opposed to putting them into boxes. But that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful benefit. And do some of your groups continue to meet even after the workshops and the classes are over? Many of them get addicted, Marie. They don't want to quit. Sometimes we'll add a seventh week because of that. But uh, very often, three or four, five, sometimes all of them, six, seven, will get together and plan to meet once a month for the foreseeable future and continue reading their stories to one another. And in the village where I live, there are at the present moment about seven or eight such groups going, still going on. Wow. Uh, there are two I'm a part of. One's been going for nine years and a second one for six years. So uh, uh, addiction is addiction here. Uh, you, you make some of your best friends uh, through these groups, and you yes. don't want to quit. So you're not kidding when you say they, you know, they continue on. Like, that's six years and nine years. That's not like, that's not chump change. That's like. <laughs> not all of them do that, but some do. Yeah. Well, there you go. So would you share a few responses that you've received from the people in your workshops? Well, yeah, let me read two or three responses here. First of all, I'll start out with a response from my dear friend James Hyde, a clinical psychologist, who said, when people tell one another their stories, the sacred enters the room. And I cannot tell you the number of times I have had the sense in the middle of that workshop that we are all sitting there on sacred ground 
because of what's going on between us. Another comment was a woman who said she was in her uh, middle 80s, late 80s. This group asked me to reach deep down inside myself and come out with the best I can do. And I love doing it. Another one was from a fellow who had spent all his life as a salesman, used to convincing other people that he knew what they needed. And he said... I have found a new dimension in relating to people. I pay attention now. (laughs) And then let me just read one more, which I find very helpful. A woman described the the workshop as a place where everyone is a teacher, where everyone is a student. And that's descriptive of what goes on. And as you've heard... Many of these groups from the workshops and the classes continue to meet even after they're over. And so we decided that we were going to bring you two members from an ongoing group, Steve and Mehan, who have now been continuing to meet with the group they started with for, I think it's more than six or seven years. So they are the next chapter of this storytelling workshop, and we would like you to hear from them as well. Our group has changed. It's a, and we have membership changes. Some people have stepped away because they had they had other interests. Some stepped away for because of health issues. Um, we've had some people, a person join us. There's a couple people join us in the interim uh, that I've been been involved. And and I think COVID had a pandemic have influence on that, as you can expect. But we've hung, uh, the, the core group has, has hung together. The other thing that has changed is the people in the group have changed. I mean, they're the same people, but what we've changed is May and, and I and Jim and, and Kent and some of the others who were not, that are in the group, their lives have taken pretty dramatic um, direction changes, some desired and some not so desired. We've kind of been, I don't know, let's say walking, more stumbling, <laughs> stumbling alongside each other over these 10 years as we have issues with our children and grandchildren, issues with our health, our or the political situation in the country, COVID itself threw us a whole lot of curves about, you know, how do we respond to this and how do we, and so I've changed in the 10 years. I've changed significantly um, in the way I listen and um, the profundity that I would have overlooked had I not had a chance to know these other guys and women in the group. To have an opportunity to come together with, uh, really enjoyable people and people that you trust and uh, enjoy. The writing is one layer, but uh, probably a deeper layer is just the relationships. You're together that often with people who dig deep and risk what they write. That's always such a risk to me to have people hear what I'm writing and and have support and humor and sometimes suggestions, but it's not a, it's not the kind of writing group where everybody just bores in very critically with each other's writing. Uh, but there are suggestions, and uh, but mainly support and laughter. So it gave me a community, and I think in aging, you know, there's a lot that insulates people and isolates. And here's the opposite of going deep with a few older people. 
and uh, enjoying learning from each other's life. And uh, so those two things, it certainly helped, gave me a way to write, but it gave me relationships like with Steve. I would not have likely ever come across Steve. But, uh, in you know, he's a soul friend now because every month we show up together, we share something about our life. So those two things I've learned and appreciated. And Jim, if you could leave people with just one thing about the importance of the story, what would that be? It's exactly what I said at the beginning. Articulation is therapy. Articulation helps us straighten ourselves out in new and different ways and understand ourselves and know ourselves. Uh, And it is critical uh, in my life and in others I have been around. I know that you said that people don't necessarily come to your workshops to write a book, but you have actually written a book it's a course on how to write your story, right? So what is the name of the book? And can you tell us a little bit about it and where people can find it? The book is a synopsis of what we do in the workshop from beginning to end, Marie. Uh, it includes many of the things I've just talked about. Its title is Moments of Magic, Personal Story Writing in a Small Group. Uh, I am its author, James O. Chatham, and it is available through Amazon. I've put it together for the purpose of giving people who wanted to move out of there and do this kind of workshop in other places a guiding hand in how at least we do it here. And uh, it's gone a number of different places. And on that note, Jim, before we go off into the sunset to create new stories. Will you read us a short piece that you've written? Big turning points often approach quietly. It was a summer afternoon, blue sky, bright sunshine. I was 12. My father and I had seated ourselves down the third baseline at Southside Park a rickety old baseball field hammered together from wooden boards. Our local Cardinals were playing a team from Leaksville a few miles up the road. The grandstand was full, neighbor visiting neighbor, friendly conversations abounding, people having a good Sunday afternoon time. Our home team scored early, but the visitors had retaliated. Six inning, our team led seven to four. With one out in the top of the sixth, the Leaksville batter lined a ball between first and second in the right field for a single. Next up was the pitcher. And to no one's surprise, the public address system barked to life. Batting for Hyatt will be Edward Johnson. Seconds later, a young black man emerged from the opposing team dugout carrying a bat. My senses froze. I had never seen a black man in a baseball uniform before. In my thoroughly segregated hometown, I had experienced very few blacks at all, occasionally on the back seats of buses 
or on downtown streets. And yet it had been two years now since Jackie Robinson began playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and this new phenomenon was bound to reach down to us. Why not, I thought. Give him a chance. Maybe he's good. Three steps into his journey toward home plate, a scene occurred that would change my life forever. Raining from every side of the baseball park came the most vicious, ugly outpouring of jeers, boos, insults, foul language I had ever beheld. Just awful, awful stuff. Let your imagination run as huge as you can, and that won't be enough. It was a thunderous assault. I looked at my father. What's going on? Now, my father was in no sense a social liberal. He had grown up on a Wilkes County farm. As a young adult, he had survived the depression, a trauma that had profoundly marked him, and he spent the rest of his life guarding his family against a repeat. He was a nice, quiet, dependable, southern man, my best friend, and I loved him. In response to my question, he frowned and he grimaced. I almost held my breath waiting to hear what he would say. It's just a bunch of people acting ugly, he said. A clear cue. He bore no sympathy for the outburst, and yet he was not openly protesting what his culture was doing at that moment. He was clearly standing apart from it. What in him had created this? I wish I knew to this day. Such questions do not occur at age 12. Childhood is filled with missed opportunities. Either the pinch hitter had been carefully prepared by his elders, or he had ice-cold nerves. That young man walked forward as if nothing at all unusual was happening in that park. He did not flash anger or reply. I find what he did absolutely astounding because the barrage continued everywhere across the park. The batter stepped into the box and measured his swing. Throw at his head, pitcher. There's nothing up there to lose. That came from the man sitting next to my father. I dreaded what the pitcher might do. He delivered off the plate, outside, ball one. Relief flooded me. I had visualized a vicious knockdown pitch and then spectators pouring onto the field in a mob trampling. Next pitch, strike one. Good fastball on the inside corner. On the third pitch, the batter popped a fly into shallow right center field. The center fielder caught it, and the batter turned and returned across the diamond to the third base dugout. My father looked at me at that point. He wasn't angry, but was intensely unsettled. He focused straight into my eyes, speaking softly but firmly. You are never to act that way toward any human being. 
his words bored into my head. I can still hear them. He said nothing more. He didn't need to. What he had said already would last a lifetime. That Sunday afternoon was my first look at a mean, ugly side of my people. These were my neighbors, the folks I had lived among all my life. They had watched me grow, they had encouraged me, corrected me, been proud of me, loved me, and to this day I am glad to have been nurtured in the common-sense intelligence of their working-class culture. But there before my eyes was a grotesque, hate-filled side of them that I had never seen before. What was it about my people that the sight of a single black man could turn us into vicious beasts? My neighbors were never quite the same after that, and neither was I. It was what John Steinbeck once called an aching kind of growing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to stay up to date with our podcasts and content, visit our website at neverbeenoldbefore.com. Never been old, the letter B and the number 4.com, where you can also sign up for our email newsletter. Find us on Facebook at Never Been Old Before and give us a follow. We'd love to connect and hear your thoughts. Until the next episode, this is Marilyn, Marie and Sarah signing off.